Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 5, The Hittites. So let's have a recap before we venture into the story of the Hittites. The ancient era of Mesopotamia was ushered in at the end of the Jemdet Nazar period in around 2900 BCE. This is where we entered the early dynastic period of Mesopotamia, where the individual city states were represented by a king and a deity who would have temples built within the city for the deities. Sumer, as a region, would unite, and one of the city-states and their king would become a supreme ruler over the city-states. The supreme city-state or capital city would change according to which king was the most powerful. While this was going on, Semitic peoples would be settling in the city-states further up the Euphrates, centred on a city called Akkad, and these people, which we call the Akkadians, conquered the Sumerians in 2334 BCE. The Akkadians' rule would last until the Guti people of the Zagros Mountains would run the Akkadians out of Sumer during the 22nd century BCE. This is where the city-state of Ur would return to its former glory and assume control of Sumer and prevent the nomadic outsiders from completely taking over the region. The third dynasty of Ur would remain the supreme power in Sumer for the next hundred years, but the nomads would return. Amorites would suppress the Ur dynasty from the west, while the Elamites from the east would conquer the city of Ur in around 2004 BCE, ending the third dynasty. City-states would compete for supremacy in Sumer over the course of the next 200 years. Initially, Isin would be the most powerful, before Lhasa would bring Ur into its sphere of influence. Ultimately though, it would be Babylon that would become the most powerful. Under its king Hammurabi, it would have influence over the whole of Mesopotamia. It was the Hittite king, Mershali, who would be responsible for the fall of the first Babylonian dynasty, when he ventured all the way down from Anatolia to sack Babylon in 1595 BCE. The question is, who were the Hittites? Hattian culture. Previously in this podcast series, we discussed how Anatolia 
was the site of great Neolithic sites such as Chatelhuyuk, Chayonu, Nevelichori and of course the very famous Gobekli Tepe which was a mysterious megalithic site of great wonder. We know that settlements existed and we know that trade existed. We can feel certain that ritual worship was taking place. We don't really see any historical evidence about Anatolian life until the days of Sargon the Great's Akkadian Empire when the Hattians are named as the people of Anatolia. It is believed that the Hattians spoke a Hattic language which we cannot directly relate to any other known languages. It is possible that they worshipped gods of the natural universe such as the earth and the sun for example and that their deities were anthropomorphic which means part human part animal. There is also speculation that they believe that the gods emanated from aquifers, those water saturated layers within the earth that are similar to the ones in the beliefs of the early Sumerians. It is not certain where the Indo-Europeans originated from, but the most popular school of thought is that they came from the area of the Ukrainian steppe, which is on the north side of the Black Sea. Anatolia is to the south of this same sea. Indo-Europeans are thought to have emerged as a distinct group during the Neolithic, some six to ten thousand years ago. It might be that these people have some connection with the domestication of the first horses, as the location and time of origin are very similar. What is more certain is that the Indo-Europeans were very likely talking a common ancestor language of many modern languages, such as the Balto-Slavic languages of Eastern Europe, the Germanic languages of Northwest Europe and Scandinavia, the Hellenic languages of Greece, the Indo-Iranian languages which stretch from Iran to Northern India and the Italic languages of Southwest Europe, among others. This podcast is being broadcast in English, which in itself is a modern Germanic language, and as such can probably trace its roots back to the Indo-Europeans of the Ukrainian steppe, if indeed that is where they came from. For more information about this, please listen to the most incredible History of English podcast. The reason why we are talking about the Indo-Europeans is because we believe that there could have been a migration of these peoples into the land of the Hattians. And this could have happened as long ago as 2000 BCE. We don't know too much about this migration, but it does seem that this is a classic case of one society integrating into an existing society. We cannot be sure how aggressively or how peacefully this occurred, but we do know that the immigrating Indo-Europeans 
would take charge of the area. These Indo-Europeans moving into Hattian Anatolia were called the Hittites and they would establish their own culture in Hattian lands. The Hattians were absorbed and their culture was consumed. Most of the earliest Hittite occupations of Anatolia appears to suggest that they lived in settlements which would vie for supremacy over each other, not completely unlike the nature of the Sumerians before they were conquered by the Akkadians. Originally, the Hittites would establish their capital city at the old Assyrian trading post called Kanesh, which we mentioned in the previous podcast, and the Hittites would call Nesha. Ultimately, the Hittites would move their capital city to the more well-known Hattusa, which we also mentioned in last week's podcast. The king who moved the Hittite capital to Hattusa was named Hattusili. The Old Kingdom Hattusili's establishment of a Hittite capital city at Hattusha seems to be an iconic event which symbolises the conceived beginning of the Hittite Old Kingdom. Hattusili had to establish rule over Hattusha after it had been destroyed by King Anitta, who we know was a Hittite speaker. Anitta was a comparatively local king at the time, but he is attributed as being the author of the earliest known Indo-European text, which is called the Proclamation of Anitta. Although Anitta is claimed to have cursed Hattusa and anyone who attempted to rebuild it, this did not stop Hattusili making it the centre of his Hittite kingdom and rebuilding it himself. Hattusili was the man who initially unified the Hittite people under one rule. It is through these initial expansions and interactions that the cuneiform script was assimilated and in the same way that the Akkadians had taken it from the Sumerian culture a few centuries previous, the Hittites took it from the Semites that were now using it in the Near East. For all Hattusha's hard work in establishing a far-reaching and unified Hittite empire, it doesn't appear to have lasted too long, as his sons, with their newfound power, seem to have cashed in on their father's wealth and power by being the one to push him aside. However, Hattusili determined that it should be his grandson, Mershali, who should be the next Hittite king. And we have already spoken of Mershali in the previous podcast. Mershali. The one thing that Mershali was able to achieve that Hattusili did not do beforehand was to venture into the kingdom of Yamhad and take its capital city called Halab, which is actually modern day Aleppo, which is in the modern country of Syria. The Yamhad kingdom was founded by the Amorites 
and the Hittite invasion marked the end of its existence. This feat was achieved around the year 1600 BCE. Hattusili's incursions had done their bit in weakening the Yamhad kingdom, however so, Mursili was simply the one to finish the job that had been on the cards for some time. What it was that drove Mursili almost 2,000 miles down the Euphrates River to Babylon afterwards is a little bit unclear. It could be that the Hittites had a good knowledge of the Babylonians thanks to the most powerful king of the Babylonians, Hammurabi, having extended his own sphere of influence up towards Hittite territories, especially those established Assyrian trade posts in Anatolia, now part of the Hittite realm. However, in 1595 BCE, Mursali did attack the city of Babylon, and he did it successfully, and removing the statue of their deity in the process. What is confusing about Mursali's invasion is that it was not possible for him to hold Babylon, being so far away from the centre of his own kingdom. So he had no choice but to ultimately abandon Babylon and head back north to the centre of the Hittite kingdom and its capital city at Hattusha. So if Mursali was able to at least raid Halib and Babylon, then surely his homecoming would be to a hero's welcome. Well, sadly, this does not appear to be the case. Although he may have initially enjoyed some of his stolen wealth, his sister's husband, Hantili, conspired with his own daughter's husband, Zidanta, and together they committed regicide by slaughtering the conquering king, Mursali, and taking the throne of the Hittites. It was Hantili who would rule in Mursali's place, but already the fragility of the kingdom had been exposed due to this regicide. Mursali's murder and subsequent and successful usurpation of the Hittite throne appears to validate the act of killing the king to take the power, and this created a terribly dangerous environment for what was effectively the royal family of the Hittites. After Hantali was able to take the throne in around 1590 BCE, he reigned for around 30 years, in which time he was able to undertake military campaigns to try and maintain a decent-sized kingdom against his border rivals. However, after his own death in around 1560 BCE, Hantili's son, Pishini, was due to take the throne. However, it was Zidanta once again who 30 years earlier had assisted his father-in-law to take the throne for himself who now took the initiative to assassinate Pishani and all of his legitimate children to ensure he could take the throne for himself. And he did just that. Ten years later, Zidanta was killed at the hands of his own son. Amuna. There was no honour among family members when it came to assuming the throne of the kingdom, and it appears that the size of the Hittite kingdom 
was being reduced also. Iron. Iron is a metal that can be extracted in ores in a similar way to copper and tin. As we know, copper was in widespread use in the second millennium BCE and it had been for a few millenniums. Smelting metal was something being done in the Near East in order to create cast ornaments or weapons and it was being used alongside tin to create bronze. Iron wasn't something that was never used before the Iron Age. Its use was just isolated and rare, so in other words, it wasn't widespread as with copper or bronze. Part of the reason for this is because it was a metal which required higher temperatures to be worked, even higher than copper. So not only did suitable crucibles have to be created, but also the clever use of bellowing air to create hotter temperatures would have been necessary too. While the production of iron artefacts by the Hittites is not to the kind of scale where we can say that the Iron Age was in full swing, we can see evidence of some kind of mastery over this high melting point metal. The expertise of iron working is quite involved and I'm about to touch on this very briefly. It appears that Hittite iron working involved the use of reducing agents such as carbon which would prevent the iron from turning into rust and bring down the melting point therefore making the iron more malleable. It is this expertise that allowed the Hittites to master iron working and advance their metallurgical science maybe even giving them the edge over neighbouring societies but at least allowing them to produce attractive objects for trading purposes. Iron weapons would certainly offer an edge in battle. The Hittite soldier with an iron sword would get more use for his money than his opponent with a bronze sword. The Hittite soldier with iron armour would likely be more hard-wearing and impenetrable than his opponent with bronze armour. Iron was simply stronger and more reliable for a longer period of time. Hittite farmers would use iron ploughs which would be tougher and more able to turn over tougher soils more effectively. The Hittites were in the right area of the world with access to the right materials and the ability to develop the right technology to be ahead of their time when it came to metallurgy. You could possibly say that the Hittites entered the Iron Age long before the rest of the world and this is certainly going to be a factor that contributed to the success of their empire. Middle Kingdom Despite the success of Hittite ironworking, the Middle Kingdom of the Hittite Empire is thought of as a quiet period of their existence. It followed the period where monarchs were regularly being assassinated at the end of their reigns. It also seems to coincide with a period that the Kaskians were quite troublesome. The Kaskians were an ethnic group 
in the north of Anatolia. The capital city was moved on more than one occasion. It does appear that the Hittites went to some lengths to preserve their status on the world map during this difficult period in their history. Using diplomatic means to negotiate with their neighbours such as the Hurrians of northern Mesopotamia, the fact that the Hittites were using cuneiform writing to express their own language demonstrates a political link between themselves and the cultures of southern Mesopotamia. This really isn't that surprising. Their regional predecessors, the Hattians, were closely linked to Mesopotamian societies and there is no way that the Hittite king would have ventured so far down the Euphrates to Babylon a century previous without some sort of knowledge of Mesopotamian life. So little exists about this period of Hittite history and what little we do have is yet to be interpreted to any understandable degree. We do know that it was the precursor to what would be the start of a Hittite resurgence and a period where the Hittite area of control would expand. The New Kingdom If we look back to the period of time leading up to 1400 BCE, then we can see activity in the far west of Anatolia. This is the coastline of modern Turkey which overlooks the Aegean Sea and the Greek Peninsula. A number of states, possibly what we could describe as city-states, had emerged and coalesced into what we can describe as a confederation. Not totally unlike the organisations of early dynastic Sumer. It was 22 of these states that were collectively known as Asua, which may have been where the Greeks originally formed the name Asia to describe all the lands to the east. When Asia became the word to describe the entire massive continent that we know today, the area that the Greeks called Asia would assume the name Asia Minor, which is what we have been calling Anatolia. It was the Hittite king Tadhalia who moved into Asua and defeated it into submission despite the fact that it appears that the confederation was only formed as a means to fend off the aggressively outward-facing Hittites. If this was the first major conquest of the new Hittite kingdom, then this may have sent a message out to the other neighbours that they would need to prepare for potential invasion. One wave of excitement was in the former Amorite kingdom of Yamhad which we mentioned earlier in the podcast as the kingdom which was conquered by the Hittites under Mershali before he headed southeast to sack Babylon some 200 years earlier. After Mershali's assassination, the Hittite influence over these lands waned and another neighbouring kingdom that had emerged in northern Mesopotamia called the Mitanni had expanded into the former kingdom of Yamhad, effectively subjugating it. Tension was mounting between the two expanding kingdoms of the Hittites and the Mitanni. It may have actually been around the year 1344 BCE 
that Sepiluliuma became the king of the Hittites. And this would have been a very significant time for this kingdom. Now, before I go any further, I have tried to use the middle chronology to put years to the events during a time in which years were not named in a way that we understand them today. Now, we're heading towards a period which will introduce the Egyptians into Near East politics, and the Egyptians had their own chronology, which I will now try to use as a base for dating stories of the king, Sapiluliuma, onwards. Sapiluliuma turned his attention towards the kingdom of the Mitanni to the southeast, and after pushing them out of the former Yamhad kingdom, the Hittites turned their attention to the Mitanni heartlands. Sapiluliuma was very keen to demonstrate that he was the powerhouse of the region. Many Hittite scriptures from this period claim great victories for the Hittites, but a lot of the Mitanni scriptures do not recognise them. It can be construed that the Mitanni were somewhat subject to the Hittites, and the Mitanni have been described in many places as a vassal state. Sapiluliuma started to venture down the Levant coastline as far as Byblos, which belonged to the Egyptians. This was the meeting of two mighty empires that had been successfully expanding their territories and were now bordering one another and battling for control of the states of the Levant. As strong as the Egyptians were, the Hittites were simply stronger. And as a consequence, any attempts that the Egyptians made to reclaim lost lands to the Hittites were by and large in vain. It was at this point that the recently widowed Egyptian queen wrote a letter to the Hittite king, Sapiluliuma, stating the following. My husband has died and I have no son. They say about you that you have many sons. You might give me one of your sons to become my husband. I would not wish to take one of my subjects as a husband. I am afraid. Sapiluliuma was initially very cautious, but in 1324 BCE took a chance on sending his son, Zananza, southwards to meet the Egyptian queen, marry her and become the pharaoh, which is the name given to Egyptian monarchs. It sounded wonderful in principle as the Hittites were now potentially able to subjugate the Egyptians. Zananza headed southwards to Egypt, but he never made it there. Later, the Egyptians would acknowledge Zananza's death. But Sapiluliuma was enraged and subsequently launched brutal attacks on the Egyptian strongholds of the Levant. It was reported that the Egyptians were taken back to the Hittite Empire as prisoners of war, but their illnesses started a deadly epidemic in the Hittite Empire. And this was also the time of the death of the great Hittite king, 
to Pilulioma in 1322 BCE. The Battle of Kadesh Things remained tense between the Hittites and the Egyptians after this time. The Hittites were also being pressurised on a different front by a new Assyrian empire which had emerged during the 14th century BCE. Sometime after the death of Sipiluliuma in around 1295 BCE, his grandson would become the king of the empire and his name was Muatali II. Maybe five years after, Seti I became the pharaoh of the Egyptians. And some claim that Seti I made a deal with Muatali II to cede the city of Kadesh, which is located in the Homs governorate of the modern-day country of Syria. In 1279 BCE, the Egyptian pharaoh Seti died, and his son took over, namely Ramesses II. Ramesses II would pressurise the cities and lands of the Levant, including some of those controlled by the Hittites. The key focus point for anybody studying this period of Egypt-Hittite diplomatic relations is the Battle of Kadesh, which appears to have taken place in around May 1274 BCE. When we look into the information relating to the details of the battle itself, we can establish that it was a battle which contained a great many chariots. It has been speculated by historians that the Egyptians may have brought over 2,000 chariots to this battle. It is believed that this mass amount of chariots were met in response by large numbers of Hittite chariots, making this the largest known chariot battle ever fought. The Hittites launched an attack on the Egyptians, which they were equal to, and subsequently the strong Egyptians were able to force the Hittites into a retreat to within the city itself, which the Egyptians laid to siege. The problem with this is that the Egyptians were overstretched and unable to complete the siege successfully. Ultimately, the Egyptians had to retreat and the battered and bruised Hittites were able to hold on to Kadesh. After this stalemate, King Muatali II of the Hittites died and sometime after his brother Hattusili III would take his turn at being the king of the Hittites. And it was he who helped to create a peace treaty between his Hittite empire and Ramesses II, the Egyptian pharaoh, in 1258 BCE. The two monarchs never met in person, but still the treaty was created. The most important points of the treaty, which is often called the Egyptian-Hittite Peace Treaty, is that the two nations agreed not to battle with each other, from now until the end of time. And that they agreed to ally with one another if a third party attacked them. 
The wonderful thing about this treaty is that we have found versions of it from both sides' perspectives. It seems to be a treaty of two nations tired of using all of their energy and resources in battle with one another with very little ultimate change to the status quo. The Fall of Hattusha The Egyptian-Hittite Peace Treaty may have been made as a response to the growing power of the Assyrians, posing a threat to both the lands and cities of the Egyptians and the Hittites. While the Battle of Kadesh was taking place, the Assyrians were busy trying to take control of the Mitanni lands. The pressures surrounding the Hittites became too much, and as such, some of the ethnic groups surrounding them especially the Kaskians that we mentioned much earlier in our podcast, were a major part of the aggressors in the eventual fall of the Hittite capital of Hattusha. Where did the name Hittite come from anyway? Well, it was due to there being an assumption that these Indo-European peoples were actually the Hittites that were mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. The fall of the city of Hattusha is also symbolic of the fall of the Hittite Empire, which is astonishing when you look at the vast and powerful uh, nation that it had been in the not-too-distant past. This would be one of our first casualties of a period of history called the Late Bronze Age Collapse, which is something that deserves an entire podcast episode to discuss more closely and it will therefore be the subject of our next podcast so thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast it's much appreciated and i hope you enjoyed it the amount of listens are going up week by week so we're gathering more and more people and every time a new episode comes out i'm noticing that more people are listening to it each week after it comes out and i think It's uh, in part thanks to the work of some people such as Ryan Stitt at the History of Ancient Greece podcast Um, and uh, this week in particular he allowed me to introduce his episode uh, of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Go and listen to it now, it's quite bizarre listening to me introduce someone else's podcast but I did it and... uh, if you listen to it, you'll uh, you'll might be introduced to Ryan Stitt's work, which if you've not listened to before, I recommend you give it a try. I received uh, an email from JL Fernandez Blanco, who uh, who's from Argentina, and uh, he said, um, you know, "The question is, where are you from? I can't pinpoint your accent to any specific place." If this is not an intrusive question, I'd like to know. It's very polite. Uh, well, we, we covered this last week. I'm from near London in England. And uh, that's uh, my accent is typical of that area. We You sometimes hear uh, people speaking in much more of a received pronunciation fashion in some environs of London. And uh, that's not really the natural accent of London. The natural accent of London is much more like mine. So you see, you, you do get a variation from uh, different areas of London. 
Uh, depends really. Um, if you want to be more well spoken, you're going to sound a little bit more received pronunciation than than I do. So that sort of explains the accent. And um, if you listen to last week's podcast episode, I think it was where I explained why sometimes we're mistaken for sounding like Australians by certain people. Um, JL goes on to write, by the way, I love the podcast and I'm thinking about using clips for my grad and undergrad history students. Thanks and cheers. Uh, well, that's that would be an honour for me to uh, be played back to to graduates who maybe can learn something from the podcast that's a, that is a huge honor so like that's a very heartwarming um message to be received jl so i thank you sincerely for sending me that baltimore phil was kind enough to give me five star review on itunes he put the podcast is so much fun just love this podcast so interested and fun perfect for a lay person just love it that uh, well, the lay person thing is is particularly important to me. Uh, that the podcast is accessible for everybody. I've I've listened to so much history over the years, and sometimes you're sort of blinded with jargon, and it's just it's not fun to listen to. It's not engaging, and and we've really got to try and bring that into history because history is so wonderful. If anyone's interested in history, they'll know how exciting it is to study and learn history so it's really really important it's presented in an accessible fashion well i think that's just about it for this week next week is going to be a very interesting one the late bronze age collapse what on earth is all that about um in order to find out you're just going to have to wait till next week so until then cheerio have a fantastic week the History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter